0: Well, good morning. I was going to make a little joke about humility based on what Steve said about me, but after that song, I don't think it's a time for jokes because that's such a, what a powerful truth that we just got to sing and praise to our Lord. From the ashes, I will rise. He's resurrecting me. What a wonderful truth. Well, as Steve stated in the video this morning, we're beginning this series on leadership and This idea of getting back to the basics, back to the football, as Steve used as an analogy. And what we find in Scripture is that God's view of leadership is very different from the world's view in general. If you look at job postings for management positions, or really just about any position YOU'LL FIND THAT THE MAIN REQUIREMENTS IN THAT LISTING FOR THE JOB, IF YOU ARE TO BE QUALIFIED TO TAKE THAT JOB, YOU HAVE TO HAVE A CERTAIN LEVEL OF EDUCATION. MANY TIMES YOU HAVE TO HAVE A BACHELOR'S DEGREE OR A MASTER'S DEGREE OR EVEN A DOCTORATE IN THE PARTICULAR uh, FIELD THAT THE JOB IS FOR. YOU HAVE TO HAVE EXPERIENCE. YOU SEE MANY TIMES, MUST HAVE uh, FIVE TO TEN YEARS EXPERIENCE of, uh, OF INCREASING EXPERIENCE IN MANAGEMENT. And obviously, you have to have specific skills to do the job. You have to understand if it's a management position, many times you have to understand what a business plan is, how to set up a budget, and how to keep on track, and do reporting, and lead people, and do all those things that managers do. So you need to be educated, have experience and skills. And in great contrast to that, In great contrast to that, the biblical standards revolve around a person's character. It's not what they know or what they do, but really who they are that matters the most. This week I came across an article by a blogger, a Christian blogger named Tim Challies, I'd recommend him to anyone who's looking for some good material to read. Tim Challies is a very balanced guy. He's very theologically sound, but he doesn't lean to one side or the other, but always gives a balanced view. And he had an article this week on the qualifications for a pastor, and he had this to say about it. He said, quote, "...the New Testament clearly, repeatedly, and unapologetically lays out the qualifications of a pastor." What is so remarkable, yet so often overlooked, is this. Pastors are called and qualified to their ministry, not first through their raw talent, their finely honed skill, or their great accomplishments, but through their godly character. Of all the many qualifications laid out in in the New Testament, there's just one related to skill. He must have the ability to teach others, and one related to experience. He must not be a new convert. The rest of the nearly 20 qualifications are based upon character. What fits a man to ministry is not first accomplishment or capability, but character. Chalice goes on to mention that that truth cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often. The fact is, while the world may be drawn to a person because of his or her charisma or because of their abilities, leadership in the kingdom of heaven has at its very foundation a godly character. And that's why we're starting this series on leadership this morning in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. And just as a little side note on the book of Matthew, this book is all about the king, and his coming kingdom. It's all about Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And from beginning to end, that Matthew portrays the kingdom of heaven to be entirely different from the kingdoms that we find in our world today and in the world of that day. The book starts out with Jesus being born in obscurity in the small little town of Bethlehem. He was not born in some royal palace among the royalty. Even his public ministry, in, rela- in contrast to that of the Jewish religious leaders of his day, Jesus taught as one with authority. He taught as one with authority. He was a friend of sinners. He had compassion on those who were sick and diseased. Jesus touched those who were untouchable according to the Jewish law. Unlike the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Jesus was not concerned about himself, but about others. Just as Jesse pointed out in the Philippians passage, he emptied himself and became man. He didn't need to do that, but he did. And so throughout the chapters of Matthew leading up to our text, Jesus has been teaching that the life of the believer, life as a kingdom citizen, was to be countercultural. Life in the kingdom of heaven was to be a humble and obedient life of dependence upon God himself. The citizens of this world are proud and self-seeking, but the citizens of the kingdom are to humbly look out for the interest of others. And we see that in, in the very context of the passage that we come to in, in chapter nineteen in the beginning of chapter twenty, Jesus lays out the this countercultural principle of the first being last and the last being first. Those who are first from the world's perspective are last in the kingdom of heaven. And those who from the world standards are nobody, they're nothing, they're they're have no value, are really the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's countercultural. It's a way of thinking that just puts everything, flips it on its head. And this morning, as we examine our text, we'll see that this countercultural nature is not just to the life of the believer in general, but it certainly applies to those who are in leadership. In contrast to the world who looks for leaders who are self confident, who are capable and strong we find in our text that the foundational requirement for leaders in God's kingdom is this idea of humility, that character quality, godly character quality of humility. And so that's going to be the first core of leadership that we'll look at in the series this month. And so as we go through this text, I'm going to break up the text itself into four points. We'll look at a prediction that Jesus gives of his death. We'll look at some political positioning that's going on as two of the disciples try to make their place in the kingdom. And then Jesus is going to give us a kingdom principle, a principle for leadership. And finally, we'll see this great model of humble leadership in Jesus himself. And so with that outline in mind, you can follow along as I read the text on the screen. Or if you have a copy of God's word, you can follow along in it. We'll be reading Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28, which says this And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray as we read God's, as we examine God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy on us. Lord, we thank you for your love that you've shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you have brought us together as a church, as one people, citizens of your kingdom. Lord, that we might serve one another. And Lord, this morning as we continue in praise and worship of you, we ask that you would just guide and direct our hearts as we hear your word. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would teach each and every one of us. Lord, that you would take these words of mine, these words that are nothing in and of themselves. Lord, I pray that you would take them and that you would apply them to our hearts in a way that would bring you glory and honor. And Lord, we just ask now and Christ's name, all these things. Amen. Well, as I said, in the chapters leading up to this text, Jesus has been teaching the countercultural nature of life in the kingdom. This idea that he phrased as so the last shall be first, and the first last. And so, as we begin our looking at the text this morning, we find this prediction of Jesus, which is really the ultimate example of the last being first and the first being last. As a matter of fact, the text that we're covering begins and ends with the same truth, that Jesus, the Son of Man, will be killed. And Jesus, He speaks to Himself, He doesn't just tell the disciples, hey, I'm going to the Do this. This is what's going to happen to me. He he refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a messianic title. It's a title that um, that was for the Jewish Messiah, the Savior that was predicted in the Old Testament that the Jews had been searching for. The Messiah, the Savior, would die. And of course, from the world's perspective, Jesus would truly be last. He would be nothing in their eyes. Here is a king that is dead. What use, what good is a dead king? A dead king is really no king at all. He is no one. He is nothing. Now, over and over throughout the chapters of Matthew leading up to this, Jesus has made allusions to his death and resurrection. He's given different... Uh, he he's said different things that allude to the fact that this was going to happen to him. Not directly. For instance, the Pharisees asked Him for a sign and He told them that He would only give them the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah being an allusion to His death and resurrection. For just as Jonah was in the belly of that great fish for three days and then was put back on the earth, Jesus would be in the grave for three days and be resurrected back to life. It wasn't a direct statement, but it was an allusion. And so... He gave these illusions, but he also would speak to his disciples. He'd pull them aside and tell them plainly what was going to happen to them. And so, this prediction that we come to is the third direct statement about his death and resurrection that he gave to his disciples. And in this prediction, he gives the clearest and fullest explanation of what was going to happen, he adds detail. In Matthew 16, the first prediction mentioned that he would suffer at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, be killed and raised on the third day. Pretty basic. He repeated that again in chapter 17 in much the same way. But this one, this prediction goes deeper. Jesus not only stated that he would be killed, but he stated how he would be killed. He would be killed by crucifixion, a shameful death, a painful death. And he also makes it clear who would be involved. There would be one who would deliver him. There would be the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and scribes that he's already told them about. But then there would be someone else, the Gentiles. Jesus would be handed over to the Gentiles, the leaders of other nations, those who were not Jewish. He would be handed over to them to be mocked, to be flogged and crucified. And so this is the first time that Jesus reveals the role of the Gentiles in his crucifixion. And of course we know that all of this actually happened. If we go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew we see all these things come to pass. We know that it was Judas who delivered Jesus into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders who handed him over to the Gentiles to Pilate. And ultimately the last person that Jesus was handed over to was the Gentiles actually handing Jesus over to God. Because in spite of the great evil that was done to Jesus, God had the final say in the events of that day. For on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. The first, the one from heaven, who became last as a human, a dead king. Became first again. And he is even now in heaven on his glorious throne, ruling and reigning. And while that is such a glorious truth, a glorious truth in which we are reminded of the greatness of Jesus, that he is God Almighty who deserves our praise, we see in our passage in this prediction the very opposite. We see the great humility of Christ. And and we see that humility not only in his willingness to die in our place, but we see it even in the way that he dealt with his disciples. His humility is displayed in his patience with them. I mean, you look throughout the Gospels, and if you read them, you see over and over that no matter how many times Jesus alluded to what was going to happen or told them plainly what was going on, they just didn't grasp the significance They didn't get it. And even though they did not grasp the truth, Jesus taught his disciples over and over. He taught them slowly and repeatedly. Jesus did not give them more than they could handle at any one time, but continued to add detail as he taught them that same truth over and over. And even after this third prediction of his death and resurrection, it's clear the disciples, they didn't understand They were still expecting Jesus to set up a physical kingdom in a worldly way. It's all they knew. It's all they understood. A king who wants to rule and reign is going to come in with force and take over. And it's clear that the disciples were expecting something of a worldly kingdom because as we move on in the text, we come to this political positioning that's going on. In verse 20, Immediately after Jesus talks about what's going to happen to him, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother, comes to Jesus. And she says, hey, I want you to put my sons at the two highest places in your kingdom. I want one to sit on your right hand and one to sit on your left. They clearly did not grasp what Jesus had just told them. He had just told them that he was going to die a terrible death, a painful death, a shameful and humiliating death. And all they're worried about are themselves and where they're going to be in the kingdom. They're worried about the next promotion. How am I going to get to that next level of management? And while it's their mother who asks and even kneels down before Jesus as someone would kneel before a worldly king, don't be mistaken. James and John are being very self-centered and prideful. They not only ignored what Jesus had just told them, but dismissed what he had been teaching them about greatness in the kingdom. At the beginning of chapter 18, the disciples were already at it with trying to get their position when they went to Jesus and asked, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus at that point answered them and told them. He brought a child to him and said, unless you are converted and become like a child, you can't even be in the kingdom. He taught that those who are humble like a child are the ones who are truly great. In the kingdom of heaven, he taught them that the first would be last and the last would be first. And yet, in spite of Jesus clearly and directly teaching them on humility, even giving them that very picture of humility by bringing the child before them, James and John pridefully seek these high positions. And then we find the disciples are still guilty of it themselves because they become indignant when they realize what's going on. They become angry and frustrated. They are probably thinking, why didn't we think of that first? Now, in their defense, we can't completely fault the disciples for their way of thinking because at the same time jesus is teaching them about the kingdom and humility we find in chapter 19 that he had promised the disciples that they would indeed sit on 12 thrones they would be in a position of leadership and of course someone had to be at the right hand and the left hand of jesus someone had to fill those spots and james and john they would be perfect Because James and John, they were members of the inner three, the inner circle of three disciples who were the closest to Jesus. James and John and Peter, if you look back at chapter 17 and verses 1 and 2, you find that they were privileged and and blessed to be taken up on the mountain with Jesus where he was transfigured before their eyes and they saw him in all his glory. And so it's no wonder that they think, hey, we're, we're the guys who should do this. We should be at the right and the left. But of course, they were thinking in worldly terms. They were looking for power, the power and the prestige that comes with such positions of authority in a kingdom. But as I've said, the kingdom of heaven is not a worldly kingdom. Jesus answered them in verse 22. He says, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. These two men had not counted the cost. They had not examined themselves and thought about what it meant to be at his right hand and his left. Jesus had already warned the disciples and told them in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here, Jesus asks if they're able to drink the cup that he was about to drink. Jesus is referring to the cup of suffering, the cup that he prayed to the Lord. If it be possible, take this cup away from me. but Not your will, not my will, Lord, but yours. Jesus is asking James and John if they are able to endure the kind of suffering that Jesus is about to endure. And they obviously didn't think about the meaning of the cup because they answered, we are able. They're very naive. But even in that naivety, there is pride. Of course we can. Of course we can do that. I remember as a, as a young man, fresh out of college, doing some interviews, and I took a job with a company, and, and the job was somewhat customer service, but it was more on the sales side. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. I found out very quickly how naive and arrogant that statement was because I'm not a salesman. I don't have that skill set. I don't have that personality. I can't do that job. And here we find James and John being naive and arrogant, thinking, of course I can. I can do anything because my parents told me that I could be whatever I want to be when I grow up. Because my mother said, you should sit at the right hand and at the left. D.A. Carson, in one of his books, calls this answer. He doesn't just call them naive. He says that this is supreme overconfidence and massive arrogance. And it is. James and John were actually the very opposite of humble. They had completely dismissed Jesus' teaching that the humble would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus continues and tells them, yes, you will drink my cup. You will indeed suffer for the kingdom and they did. We read in Acts 12:2 that James was killed for his faith. And we know that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And even though they would drink that cup and they would suffer for their faith, Jesus could not and did not grant them those two positions. He could not because it was not his to give. Jesus did not have the right because God the Father in all eternity had sovereignly decided who would sit in those two places. And that brings us in the narrative in this story to our third point, which is the kingdom principle. And here Jesus begins to contrast the leadership styles of the world with the leadership in the kingdom. Verse 25 But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. Jesus begins by reminding the disciples of how the Gentiles rule, how the other nations rule their people. They rule as one of a dictator, of a tyrant, someone who because of his power And because of his position, exercises control over the people. You know what you're going to do? You're going to pay those taxes because I said so. And if you don't, I will send my troops, those who are under my authority, out to crush you. You'll do it because I said, because I'm in that position of authority. Jesus also speaks of their great men. Their great men that one commentator describes as, as those who gain authority through charismatic manipulation. These are people who are highly thought of by the world because of their personality. They can get before a crowd and get people to fire it up and to follow them any direction they want. Not because it's right or true, but because people are just drawn to them. However, Jesus says in verse 26 that leadership in the kingdom of heaven is to be completely different. Verse 26-27, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Rather than gaining influence over people through manipulation or sheer power, the disciples were to lead by serving. They were not to delegate necessarily, but to do. Do. You want to be a leader, don't just start telling people what to do. You want to be a leader, start doing things for people. What was deemed as least in society was the way to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. They were to become a servant. And in that day, a servant was really the lowest level of hired help. The unskilled laborer who was paid very little. And if they wanted to be truly great, they would need to to serve others. If they wanted to be first, they needed to make themselves a slave. A slave was even lower than the servant. A slave was owned by his master, had no say in what he did. The very lowest in society, someone's property. They were considered a thing, not a person be first in the kingdom to be a leader they had to become what was last in society and as we move on to verse 28 we come to the final point the final section of this passage a a model of humble leadership just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many Jesus is the ultimate example of humble servant leadership Once again, the title Son of Man would have reminded the disciples that the one speaking to them was the long-awaited Messiah, the great king who was going to rule and reign on the throne of David. And yet this great king came not to be served by others, not for people to come and bow down to and be taken care of, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And so now we're right back where we started this morning with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we not only have the facts of what would happen, but here Jesus gives us the reason for it. Jesus said he would be a ransom. And now I know if, you've, uh, heard, if you hear that term, your mind almost immediately goes to kidnapping. If someone is kidnapped, the kidnappers demand a ransom. They demand money to be paid so that they will release the one who has been captured. In Jesus' day, a ransom was the money that was paid to set a slave free. Jesus gave his life as a ransom so that sinners could be set free. Set free from the power of sin, the slavery of sin, and more importantly, set free from the very wrath of God. As Jesse said earlier, the we have no rights, we have no demands upon God. If he wanted to, he could have just destroyed all of us for our sin. He didn't need to make a way, but he did. And what a glorious truth all of this is that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the eternal God, left the glories of heaven and came to earth not to be served by men, but to serve them instead. He came to die so that we might be saved. He came for his enemies that they might become his servants and followers, his brothers and sisters. He came to die so that we might be saved. And it's this truth, this gospel truth that is our motivation not only to follow him, but to humbly serve one another. Humility is not simply for leaders. It's for every Christian 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Right before that in verse 5 he says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want to be a humble leader, the reality is you first have to be a humble Christian. This glorious truth about the gospel we have to first and foremost apply to our lives as a sinner. And if you're here this morning and you have never bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, if you've heard this story of Jesus over and over, but have never been converted and become like a child and humbly fell at Jesus' feet and accepted his death on your behalf, then you can't not only be a humble leader, You can't even be in his kingdom. You're not part of this church even if you come here every week because the church is a body of believers, followers of Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we think about this text, I don't want to go past this reality that we are speaking of the gospel and the greatness of the truth that Jesus Christ came that you might be saved. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I would ask that you would bow before him, accept the truth that you are a sinner who deserves nothing but God's wrath and humbly kneel in his presence and say, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. Accept that, I, that, he, that, that you can't do enough good to make up for your sin and accept that Jesus came to serve you and to be a ransom for you that you might rise from the ashes and be resurrected to eternal life one day. Well, There's no doubt Jesus is to be the example of godly leadership for every church leader. As we think of church leadership, no doubt we immediately think that this text applies to pastors, to elders, to those who are leaders in the church who are out front. And obviously it does. And as a church, it applies to each and one of us in the sense that we are following those leaders. We as a church, as we add leaders, we need to know what to look for. As we follow them, we need to be following those who are humble. But the application is not just for those who lead in an official capacity. The fact is, every believer is a Christian leader in some respect. THAT'S TRUE EVEN IF YOU DON'T WANT TO BE A LEADER. IF ANY OF YOU KNOW MY WIFE, YOU KNOW THAT THE LAST THING SHE WANTS TO BE IS IN ANY TYPE OF MANAGEMENT POSITION. HER SISTER WOULD LOVE NOTHING MORE THAN FOR MY WIFE TO BE THE OFFICE MANAGER IN THEIR OFFICE. Jolie WANTS NOTHING TO DO WITH THAT. AND EVEN THOUGH SHE HAS NO DESIRE TO BE A LEADER, SHE IS RIGHT NOW IN THE TWO-YEAR-OLD CLASS TEACHING. Even though she has no desire to be a leader, that's exactly what she is right now as she's leading those children and pointing them to Jesus Christ. If you're a husband, you're a leader. If, you're, if, if you have children, you're a leader. If you interact with unbelievers, you are a leader because you have an opportunity to shine brightly before them the great love of Christ and lead them into his kingdom. As we've learned this morning, humility is key in kingdom leadership. And as we think about humility, I, I think we understand that humility is its a character trait. It's something inward. It's a way of thinking. It's thinking of yourself less, thinking of others more. Humility in and of itself isn't something tangible. I can't set something before you and go, here is Humility. It's not something that we can see. So how do we take and apply this text then to our lives this morning? How do we look at those who want to be leaders or those who are leaders who go, are they really leading with humility? How do we look at ourselves and say, am I leading with humility? Well, the reality is that who we are is reflected in what we do. Our inward character is shown in our outward actions. And so there's four things that I want to point out from this text that show us what humble leadership looks like. First, the humble leader is patient. As we have seen, Jesus revealed truth slowly and repeatedly to the disciples. And he taught them in spite of their continued ignorance towards the truth. As you lead people, they will fail. They may even refuse to follow you. My wife and I were talking this week and We said, she said something about, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And I don't know if all of you have heard the rest of that, which is, but you can feed them salty peanuts. We can feed people salty peanuts and continue to give them what they need in spite of their refusal to follow. And so when people refuse to follow your lead, how do you react? Sadly, I know many times myself, I get angry and frustrated because... They don't listen to what I say. Even though I know what is best for them. No, we shouldn't become angry and frustrated because they aren't following me. Rather, we should be concerned, maybe even saddened for them because they're not following God's word. Because they're not bringing glory to him. And so I'd ask you this morning as you consider, if you're a humble leader, consider whether you are patiently leading those that are in your realm? Are you teaching people slowly and continually in spite of how they take it? So first, the humble leader is patient and knows he's patient and knows those he is leading. Second, we see humility, uh, the humility of Jesus in obedience to the Father. Jesus could not command James and John to sit in those positions because that was, that was God the Father's Role Jesus didn't have that authority. And so the humble leader does not take power, the power and authority that they have, and exalt themselves above all else. The humble leader willingly submits to others. The humble leader willingly submits to others. And we see humility also in sacrificial service. Jesus gave his life that we might be saved. James and John were self elevating themselves, Jesus sacrificed himself. God became man so that he could die in our place. A humble leader is a self-sacrificing leader. And humble leadership is shown in serving others. And of course, this serving is not done out of duty. Remember that all of these things can be faked. I mean, if I want to rise uh, to be a pastor in this church, I go, you know what? I just taught on humility and leadership, and I said you've got to serve in the church, so I don't want to do this, but I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go teach the two-year-olds. I'm going to go help in the commons. I'm going to go do this or that or the next thing so that people see that I'm serving. No, that's not humble servant leadership. In the text that immediately follows ours this morning, we find Jesus healing two blind men. And in verse 34, we're told, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Humble leadership, servant leadership is done out of love and compassion for people. And so a humble leader is patient. A humble leader is submissive. A humble leader is sacrificial. A humble leader is a servant. Now, as you apply this text to yourself, understand that like the disciples, you will fail at times. You will allow your pride to get the best of you. You know, when Steve mentioned in the video this morning of how humble he says that I am, I was somewhat embarrassed because for the last several months, my, my job at work has been very difficult as I expressed in another time when I was up here. And I had right to be discouraged and frustrated with what's going on at work. But at the same time, my pride has gotten in the way. And as I've studied and prepared for this message, I was reminded over and over in the midst of my day how ungodly I was being in my my leadership. I was not being humble at times, and I was convicted of that. And, you know, I was saddened by it at times. But here's the great truth. You will fail at times, but you know what? Just as Jesus was patient with the disciples, he is patient with each and every one of us. And he will continue to give us opportunity and by his spirit convict us of those truths. We will be grieved and we will be saddened, but we can move on and press forward and humble ourselves and continue to follow Jesus and to do what he has called us to do. And so as you examine your life and as you go throughout your days, look for those around you whom God has put in your path to lead in whatever form that may take and patiently lead those who he's entrusted to you. Humbly submit to all authority over you. Be that example and willingly serve others out of love for them, putting aside yourself and putting them first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love, so much for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into your kingdom, that while we are citizens of the United States of America, ultimately we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and one day we'll have the privilege of of bowing down before you in great humility, exalting your name in your very presence. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning that might not know you, that you by your spirit would awaken them to these truths of your gospel, that they might turn to you. Lord, that you might call them into your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that for each of us, that we would seek to honor you in all that we do, that we would humbly follow you and humbly serve others. Lord, that you would make us great not because we want to be great, but because we want to glorify you in all that we do. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.